Welcome to the New Wild Review, the podcast of Bird Ally X. This is Volume 3, Episode 1, Save a Logger, Shoot an Owl. Yes, um, in fact, our podcast episode title does harken back to the forest wars of the late 80s and early 90s, when the fight to preserve what little old-growth forest remained in the Pacific Northwest was at its zenith. At the time, I think there was something like 15% of the original forest remaining. Of course, there's significantly less now. It was in the mid-80s when it was seen that the northern spotted owl's population was in steep decline because they were an owl of the forest, and the forest was being just decimated, and the population was obviously failing. So, um, But the owl became you know, an iconic poster child for the forest who was used by environmentalists and activists and biologists as an indicator species for the overall forest health, but as an iconic owl also became the target of the logging industry who tried to frame the uh, entire uh, forest war as if it were um, one insignificant owl versus all of these logging families who would be starved. And, of course, the logging families fell for that hook, line, and sinker themselves. You know, I remember driving through Forks, Washington one day in, like, 1992 and seeing a just a shack of a house, you know, asphalt siding, blue tarp on the roof, rusted out hulks of cars in the yard, and a sign in the front yard that says, this family supported by timber dollars. And it was like, that's exactly right. Today's uh, today's podcast is not going to be about the forest wars. Obliquely, it will be. You know, wildlife rehabilitators, when we address the public, so to speak, you know, through podcasts, blog posts, social media, what have you, um, we tend to really stick to the things that are necessary um, for us, such as, well, our necessities, like we need resources, we need funding. So we, you know, we um, explain what it is that we're spending money on, why we're spending it, and we ask you for it. And we do this a lot. Obviously, without support, we can't go on. So um, we do. We ask for money. We ask for help, um, donations. And we share our success stories. Uh, that's the heart of what we do. And we really want you to know about it. And we want you to know what's going on with, you know, you know, when we get an owl and we rehabilitate them and release them we like to let people know and we also sometimes share our losses um because those are real too and we also engage in education you know it doesn't take long as a care provider to the wild to recognize that many of the injuries the orphanings that we treat are preventable. So we try to help our human community make better decisions, use better practices that help protect wild neighbors and keep wild families together. In these efforts, you know, we use a very common phrase among wildlife advocates, peaceful coexistence. Uh, it's a common phrase and it's useful, but it does demonstrate, of course, a serious power imbalance. Peaceful coexistence as a phrase implies compromise, as if there are two sides who must travel some distance to meet in the middle, which is, of course, not true. The wild does not have to, and cannot anyway, uh, travel to meet civilization. 
to call for peaceful coexistence between the wild and so-called civilization is to use language that, you know, basically is placating the abuser. In this way, it's not so different than other language used similarly, such as, you know, balancing the needs of industry with the needs of nature and so on. So while we continue to use peaceful coexistence as a term to help our community have more compassion and awareness, um, for the sakes of this particular podcast, we will be keeping in mind that the war on nature that civilization wages is not a two-way street. The civilization is nature's enemy, but nature is what makes civilization possible, and that there is no compromise with what gives us life. So uh, as we go on with this, we'll, be, we'll just be remembering that who's, who the aggressor is. Okay. here in Humboldt County where I'm based there is a uh, you know and it's not just happening in Humboldt County it's happening all through the Pacific Northwest in an effort to um, stop the decline of spotted owls in their habitat starting with a pilot study and then going into just full out doing it um, barred owls have been getting shot by wildlife biologists. Removed. Taken out. And um, this has been happening uh, for, uh, I guess, the last 13 years or so. Started in 2009, the killing started. So, um, but that didn't really, that didn't factor into wildlife rehab that much because we didn't talk about it. 2017 is when we learned about this program and it's had no, almost no impact on the work we do. We, um, yeah, no impact until recently. And uh, I'll tell you, so like, this isn't something I really wanted to go into because, you know, I don't want to stir a hornet's nest, you know? Well, let's just start at the beginning or let's just start at the end. Yeah, we'll start at the end. Okay. So, about a couple of, oh, about a month, I guess it's actually gotten to be quite a while ago now. Um, it's taken me a long time to reply. It's, it, back in March, uh, a local, a, a leader of, a local leader in the environmentalist, you know, uh, nonprofit environmentalist world, reached out to me and I'm not I don't want to go into who that person is or or like if there's any but you know this is an organization that we have partnered with on many things in the past and they're not wildlife rehabilitators they are you know ad, they're an advocacy organization you know they petition they sue they do things like that they public comments they're you know um the usual and the typical stuff that environmental organizations do. And we've partnered with them on wildlife concerns, such as banning the trapping of bobcats or, um, you know, getting wolves uh, listed on the state um, endangered species list here in California and, you know, things like that. So we've worked with them on that and, you know, we basically regard them as friends. note that I got sent, and it was in relatively informal, this was just sent via Facebook, 
and it said, I have a wildlife rehabilitation question for you. As you have undoubtedly heard, barred owls are out-competing our local spotties. I have heard the rehab groups are patching up barred owls and releasing them. Curious for your thoughts on this. I appreciate the focus on the patient, but concerned with species-level impacts. Yeah, that was, uh, I guess that was, yeah, that was someday back in March. And um, what is interesting to me, the, the timing of that was that um, the message came not that long after we released an owl who had been uh, hit by a car um, down near the, uh, down near a, a mall um, off of the highway in, in Eureka. Uh, it was a barred owl. Uh, the person who captured the barred owl, interestingly enough, when I say captured, I mean he, he saw the owl get hit and he stopped and grabbed the owl and brought him to us. So he, he didn't really, he captured the owl, true. But really, he rescued the owl. Um, and the person who rescued the owl was uh, somebody who had had some work in the past helping out with, with uh, owl surveys. And so, you know, that's, it's not an unusual line of work for somebody to have dabbled in in these parts here in the redwoods with logging and spotted owls being such you know iconic issues uh sorry i'm banging into the equipment here um and he he had thought that the owl was a sparred owl as they get called which is a hybridization between spotted and barred owls and and spotted and barred owls are close enough that that happens um that they can hybridize uh does it happen that often? I don't really know the stats on that. The truth is, is that, and we'll get into this. I'm not going to tell you everything right now. I, so, um, oh, I, I started writing a comment in reply. I started writing an answer to that question. It, 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 I'll, I'll tell you that the question upset me. And it doesn't still, I mean, it does still upset me, but it's strictly intellectual upset. This is not an emotional upset. But, our local spotties is a phrase that I would never write. I just would never, I would never write that phrase. So that phrase upsets me, right? And you're like, well, why does that phrase upset you? And I'm like, well, because uh, I don't own any owls. They're not my local spotties. Um, if they're local, that part is can be true, but they're not our local. They so like it's redundant I'm obviously doing the most trivial part first in case you weren't wondering so it's redundant but it also it's just you know it's got that nature is ours rather than we are nature's uh, error and that error is responsible for so much of the damage that is done that in just in plain grammar, it bothers me. The uh, provocative nature of the message, well, here's one of the things it provoked. Uh, we just, I decided to, I turned this uh, reply to him into a course for our uh, staff and interns and volunteers. We do ethics workshops, uh, it's just that everybody does an ethics workshop. And then once a year, we build on that with an advanced ethics workshop where we take some theme that has developed 
over the year we've encountered some real world problem and we bring the real world problem and its solution to an ethical conversation so we can talk about ethical ways of handling this and what it is that we do and how we make those decisions and where is the ground that we stand on to um, say that this is right and this is not right and uh, and 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 then just continually review that process until we arrive at you know a provisional protocol and we talk I'm gonna talk about that actually so uh, maybe I should stop introducing this dang uh, podcast and um, start getting to the meat of it what I'm gonna do is uh, I'm just gonna I'm gonna basically read you my reply to a local environmentalist on the topic of barred owls. I'll dispense with the salutation. I appreciate that you reached out to hear my thoughts on the rehabilitation of barred owls in the face of spotted owl conservation efforts. We at Bird Owl X are well aware of the barred owl killings that are theoretically going to relieve pressure on spotted owls. Uh, And I don't intend to address that issue in any depth here because we simply have nothing to do with it. But still, the killing of barred owls to save spotted owls has ramifications on our work and um, such as you broach. Uh, And this is part of Lowell Diller's legacy. Lowell Diller is the wildlife biologist who is no longer uh, alive. He's deceased. Um, But you can, you can, if you search Lowell Diller, Uh, barred and spotted owl you will be able to come up with essays that he wrote on what it what that meant to him he published uh, he published extensively on this theme it can seem like a difficult knot to untie but I think our hospital's mission and the criteria we use for treatment make it fairly straightforward however I do want to be clear that while I speak for myself and I certainly speak for our organization and project I do not speak for the profession, and I don't speak for my colleagues. The only species that wildlife rehabilitators in California are legally prohibited from rehabilitating and releasing is the Eurasian subspecies of red fox. There are other species that we are prohibited from rehabilitating in general, which we are not permitted to admit, such as adult mountain lions, adult black bear, and you know, all large game mammals, except for mule deer fawns. Um, And even the mountain lions and black bears as kits or cubs, we could admit them, but we would be immediately on the phone with California Department of Fish and Wildlife, and those animals would immediately be taken, you know, or very close to immediately. We've held mountain lion kittens for about a week, Uh, black bear for about three or four days while transport was arranged to get them from you know our spot here five hours north of Sacramento down to Sacramento so um, you know that so like that's regulated as well but we could admit them but we would definitely trigger a process that immediately goes into that Um, Other than the Eurasian red fox, there are no legal prohibitions against the rehabilitation and release of other introduced species. But there is wording in our MOU, our Memorandum of Understanding, with the California Department of Fish and Wildlife that asks rehabilitators to consider the negative impact of releasing non-natives. Both in Washington and in California, I've rehabilitated and released under the permits of established facilities 
hundreds of individual animals of introduced species, such as eastern gray squirrels, European starlings, and house sparrows. I was an employee of the Progressive Animal Welfare Society's wildlife clinic in the Seattle area when they made the decision to stop treating introduced birds in the year 2000. It was a difficult transition that upset many of us. At the time, it seemed hard enough to get members of the general public to care about the life of any bird, let alone expect them to learn which birds are, quote, good and which birds are bad. Also, it seemed to me that communicating the lack of protection, telling people that these birds were not protected, um, that these introduced species were not protected, would make them more vulnerable to cruelty. After working at PAWS, Progressive Animal Welfare Society. I worked in California, and I've worked there. I've worked here since 2002. And no facility that I've worked at in this state treats in introduced species. I mean, exceptions exist everywhere, of course. There's case-by-case -case things that happen um, where you're like, ah, this is an introduced species. What are we doing here? And everybody's like, or something like that. You know, it's, um, you know, people are people, and and you know there are discrepancies so I'm not saying that no introduced species was ever treated at any of the facilities that I've worked at because there were but the policy was not to treat them and occasionally out of thousands of animals one might get through you know um, I, I don't have a specific example I'm just hedging my bet there uh, in any case from my experience after working at PAWS and then going through that and to uh, working in California with no with these in, no introduced species already in, in as part of the hospital's protocols, it's easier. It's easier to join an organization that has already made this choice than it is to help shepherd a hospital and its volunteers through the transition. And so, like to the people that I gave a hard time, you know, 22 years ago when this decision was made at Pause to do this, you know, I can only say in my defense that I was uh, I was speaking from my heart. Uh, when I was upset about the, uh, you know, no longer treating non-natives. I've believed so many different things now. You know, I mean, you change, you grow, you change, you grow, you grow. It may not even be growth. You could shrink. Who knows? We don't have anything to measure it against. The timelessness and measurelessness of the eternities makes measurement difficult. The measureless nature of the eternities makes measuring difficult. We have a protocol for our treatment of introduced species that works basically like this. And our it is primarily based on protecting native species. Our protocol is that if a species who is introduced to a region is having a deleterious impact on native species. So there were no European starlings in North America before 1867 so-called. This is the story, as I know it. Um, click like and subscribe and tell me in the comments below how stupid I am if you have to. Um, 
a person who wanted all of the birds that appear in Shakespeare's plays to live in Central Park, New York City, released European starlings into Central Park in 1867. I mean, Lincoln's body was hardly cold. That's how long ago that was. And now in 2022, European starlings are perhaps the most commonly seen bird in North America. But they probably are. They exist in a dense, completely non-threatened population, coast to coast, up into Canada, down into Mexico. They occupy, there is not a part of the United States, for instance, that European starlings have not been able to um, establish a population. Um, you know, they're just lovely birds in Europe. And here they are a non-native and they are a, um, they have a deleterious impact. They, you know, compete for nesting sites. They, uh, that what happens to native songbird populations when the European starlings are present is, um, you know, it's, it's been documented. We understand it. It's got, you know, it's, we've known it for a long time. European starlings play a part, introduced species play a part in native songbird decline. And those introduced species are European starlings, Eurasian house sparrows, and um, Eurasian collared doves. Uh, English house sparrows, sorry. Euro yeah, European starlings, house sparrows, and Eurasian collared doves are three species of birds that are introduced to North America who have a negative impact on native songbirds, and not just songbirds, also swallows, passerines, swallows. In 2011, our policy at Humboldt Wildlife Care Center regarding introduced species was pretty thoughtless. It, um, the one I inherited, uh, I, I, it, it attempted to address the concern of, you know, introduced species bad, but it did it by just telling people not to bring them those animals. No, we will not admit that. We will not accept that animal. And there's nobody out there more equipped to now know what to do with the broken animal who is suffering than the wildlife rehabilitator who just said no. So I, I feel like that was an abdication of the rehabilitator's responsibility to be the expert in the situation, to utilize the knowledge that they have to come to the right conclusions. Um, so that's why we had to recraft it. It was basically, it's unworkable for many reasons. First of all, the abdication of the responsibility as educated care providers. And then it leaves whatever happens to that bird, that bird's future is now totally in the hands of a random person with random experience and um, whatever morality they have arrived at 
at this point in their lives that and they i mean obviously they're nice enough to pick up a bird and try to get them help so you know we have that going for them but you know uh it's um there's a reason that we have a permit to treat wildlife is because we recognize the need to have a permit to treat wildlife you see what's you know like yeah there should be <laughs> any case um, so abdicating that responsibility is just is not um, something that uh, I, we can do. Um, so under our current introduced species protocol, and this has been in place for a decade, we do not provide treatment for individuals of introduced species, which have been demonstrated conclusively in peer-reviewed science to have a deleterious impact on indigenous species. Now, this is a serious course of action for a care provider to take, and I didn't adopt this protocol lightly or happily, although I do feel that it is the best protocol for our mission and for our community. Initially, I thought that because, what yes, introduced wildlife species are harmful to the naturally occurring species who occupy the same ecological niche, but since they're not individually at fault, and their sentience protects them and their right to treatment, let alone their right to exist, just on the grounds of, you know, cruelty, just like cruelty laws ought to protect them that much. But native songbird declined, you know, it really, it does mean something to me. And I have experienced that grief, as I described, of those violet green swallow hatchlings. And, you know, these are ecologically threatened times, and competition for resources is very real. Uh, and individual introduced species do take up valuable resources not just in the wild but also in our clinic and you know like all protocols ours for dealing with introduced species is provisional that is should we discover that our assessment of the threat introduced species pose to indigenous species is out of proportion to the actual damage they cause or that our efforts to not contribute to that threat which due to the numbers we are talking about are largely symbolic cause more harm than good we can return to offering treatment to individuals of those species which we currently do not um yeah so we
going into this somewhat deeply, talking about introduced species and concerns regarding their treatment when orphaned or injured, because in my opinion, individual members of an unnaturally occurring introduced species with deleterious impacts are the only individuals for whom a compelling argument for denying care can be made. And there are wildlife rehabilitators as qualified as I am, or more so, who disagree, who don't think so, who believe that you um, should take care of those um, introduced species as well. So wildlife rehabilitation is a field, you know, driven by compassion for suffering. And while our facility doesn't provide treatment for those species of introduced pastorines, many do. I've worked at facilities that, while not treating introduced species, would just transfer those individuals of those species to care providers who did. And also, as an aside, I am certain that banning the rehabilitation and release of introduced passerines or doves, parrots, wild turkeys, and so on would only drive this activity underground. And then there's no hope at all of ensuring the quality of care. Moreover, it's simply not the wildlife care provider's task to, a to rid the world of species that are viewed as deleterious at any given time. We don't euthanize healthy wild animals. That isn't euthanasia. We don't go out with shotguns and try to remove them so that barn swallows might thrive. That's not our mission, and in every way imaginable is a betrayal of that mission. To do so would introduce suffering into the world, not alleviate what is already here. And that, I mean, that really, that strikes at the core of what wildlife rehabilitation is. Reducing suffering is job one. Now, with barred owls, <laughs> remember the topic? Everything that I've just mentioned isn't pertinent. It doesn't apply. Because we're not talking about an introduced species. Yeah, barred owls have been, they've, you know, they're described as an invasive species in the science. In the science, they're described as um, ferociously invasive, very invasive, the highly invasive, the this invasive, very in, invasive, um, and they nobody knows how they got here. There's no, there's no conclusive description of how barred owls even got here. Uh, there is, there is um, documentation of barred owls having already crossed the plains. Because barred owls are considered to be endemic to the east coast of North America. And if you're not aware of this controversy, roughly it goes, uh, in 1965, barred owls were found in Washington, the state of. Washington and between then and roughly the late uh, the mid mid 70s 1976 ish um, it took for barred owls to be detected in California 
Bardows were in Colorado in 1900. Bardows were in Alberta around the same time. They were in the northern plain states of uh, Canada, the plains provinces in Canada of Saskatchewan and Manitoba in the 1870s, 1880s. Some theorize that they followed boreal forest, but others suggest that the presence of the guy in Colorado that was seen in, you know, at the turn of the century, um, suggests that they could have used the riparian habitat that often has trees across the plains, you know, at the bend in the river where the cottonwood grows, kind of a vibe. See what I'm saying? Um, so point is, is that even if they took taxi cabs, they did it themselves of their own volition. And that is not the definition of an introduced species. Mother Earth, nature, the wild, however you call these forces, brought barred owls west, not people. However, people did destroy the habitat that spotted owls require. My personal view of this is that barred owls are being used by logging interests to shift blame for the horrifying destruction of habitat for which they are solely responsible. Between uh, January 2012 and March 2022, which is 10 years, two months, right? Humboldt Wildlife Care Center admitted 61 barred owls, of which 20 were successfully treated and released, and 12 spotted owls, of which three were successfully rehabilitated. The spotted owls which were not released had injuries, for example, wing fractures, uh, eye trauma, etc., that prevented them from ever being able to be in the wild and were euthanized on admission with permission from the U.S. Wildlife, uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Generally speaking, the, those birds present on admission in significantly different ways. Spotted owl tend to be severely dehydrated, emaciated, and generally in very poor condition due to what is usually the length of time it takes them to be found because they're usually found in remote locations. And it'll be like, you know, um, a logging road out in the middle of freaking nowhere and somebody will be pulled over to the side of the road and find this owl sitting on a stump. And it turns out he's been sitting on that stump next to the side of the road, you know, for two weeks. Well, maybe that's an exaggeration, but, you know, for a week, maybe. And he's now completely emaciated and dehydrated and on death's door, and he's been sitting there because he got hit by a truck. And he's got a shattered wing and one eye is gone. And that owl is going to be euthanized with permission from U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service because of their threatened or endangered status.
The barred owls, we admit, on the other hand, generally come from more populated areas. They're found in people's backyards. They're found by the side of 101 in the corridor here of the, you know, the communities that we serve, uh, you know, from basically from Crescent City down to, uh, you know, well, really all the way down to Laytonville. Um, it's a pretty, pretty long distance. Um, but, you know, most of the owls that, barred owls that we've admitted come from the 101 corridor or the 299, which is the intersecting highway that goes east, and from the towns on them, not from the, you know, 101 has spent some time in the National Park, but this is not where they come from. They come from, you know, the communities that are on, that are on the 101. Um... All of the owls, the spotted owls that we've admitted, have come from the interior of Humboldt County or maybe even into Trinity County. Um, in the forest, logging roads. Yeah, the spotted owls come from Honeydew, Carlotta, Sawyer, Elk River, Myers Flat, um, Corbell, Dinsmore, Hawkins Bar. And, you know, the barred owls are coming from Eureka, McKinleyville, Blue Lake, Crescent City, Fortuna. Um, this, I'm not saying that our data shows that these owls don't share the same habitat. I'm just saying that we are not treating and releasing barred owls that are coming from spotted owl habitat, and we're not releasing them back into spotted owl habitat um, for what that's worth. Ending the life of a patient is something that we do every day. For us to call it euthanasia, it requires that euthanasia is a Greek word. It's a, it's a well, I don't know if it's a Greek word, but it's made out of Greek components. Um, the than, like Thanatos, death, and you, good, good death. It's all. It's all euthanasia means. Good death. It's a good death. And what makes a good death be good is that the one, it's good for the one who's doing the dying. Even the individuals of deleterious introduced species who we don't treat are still subject to the same equation of releasability versus euthanasia. I would not hold a wild animal captive because I could not in any way justify why I would that would be seen as doing something for that animal. Because I can't picture the loss of autonomy, the loss of agency, the loss of freedom as anything, but a, a, a crime that just can't, it's very hard to justify committing. It's, it, it's a, uh, you know,
As I mentioned earlier, a healthy European starling fledgling won't be euthanized, but return to their family. And fledgling site because they are releasable. We can take them back. We can release them back into the wild. It's back into the care of their family. That's what makes it release them. That, that, that means that they're intact. Being an orphan is an injury that makes you not releasable. But if you're not an orphan, you are releasable. You know, it's... I mean, you're like, dude, that's so simplistic and so easy to understand. Why do you keep saying it? If they have an injury that makes them unreleasable, then they're euthanized. The same criteria that happens to every patient that we get. If they have an injury that makes them unreleasable, they're euthanized. That's the ending suffering is job one. We get a Virginia opossum, an adult Virginia opossum, brought in and she's been hit by a car and her skull is broken in two different ways and she's still alive that's what we're there for that's what we're here for that's euthanasia is better than life in that situation. In order to use death as a treatment plan, we need rigorous guidelines like these. There has to be ground to stand on. Something we can adhere to so that to the best of our abilities, we can be able to use death as a treatment tool. It would be not only unethical, but it would damage the ability of care providers to do our job for all of our patients, as well as live with ourselves, if the basis on which we make permanent life-ending decisions had easily moved goalposts. It's absurd to ask hospitals to enter into this kind of wildlife management stratagem. We're care providers, not wildlife managers. We do not share the same goals. The only the only goal as wildlife rehabilitators that we have is seeing to it that we tend to the wildness of our patients as precisely as we attend to every other aspect of them. We are 100% on the side of the wild. Contradictions abound.
You can quote the poets on that. But everything that we do, what makes it a protocol? And what protocol is using our intelligence to understand the world around us so that we can have a stance with which to approach the future. Right? And by basing it on our intelligence, we get to learn and it can grow. Change. Evolve. From 2012 to 2017, the rehabilitation of Bardals wasn't controversial. At least not at a level to which rehabilitators were privy. Since then, of course, killing barred owls as a means of saving spotted owls has been the subject of significant media attention, and we've been in discussion amongst ourselves over this really ever since. No wildlife care provider wants to contribute to the continued decline of spotted owls. But for us to start killing our barred owl patients based on inconclusive science would be seriously irresponsible. That Green Diamond is in favor of it doesn't really sway us. In fact, it looks like they finally got their heart's desire. Save a logger, shoot an owl. Of course, should the existence of barred owl in the West be shown to be unnaturally achieved, that is, that they are indeed introduced, that is to say that people brought them here. If people brought them here, then that makes their presence here a human error and is our responsibility to deal with, just as we do with other introduced species. We make decisions knowing that a live animal is paying the price for our mistake. Everything we do remains an open question. All of our protocols are provisional, subject to change as better information becomes available or our own experience changes our perspective. But at this point, it's, I'm really hard-pressed to think it imperative that wildlife care providers stop providing care to barred owls. Moreover, the precedent would allow for a very disastrous turn in the profession of wildlife rehabilitation. In State X, we kill these birds at the behest of wildlife managers, and over here in State Y, we do not. The well-being of our patients in care would be no longer our responsibility, and care decisions would be turned over to managers who do not have the well-being of our patient at the heart of their calculations. Our patients in care would be subject to the same administrative and abstract pro-civilization forces who simply don't regard the suffering of individuals as cause enough to cease their deleterious behaviors. Our professional standards would fall, and in their place we'd have policies written by the very people who have codified, institutionalized, and profited from the destruction of nature and the commodifications of life's necessities. In my opinion, it would be a continuation of the war on the wild, not a salvo fired on behalf of conservation. Well, I hope that gives you a good idea of where we stand on this issue of providing care for barred owls in need. 
Uh, as always, on behalf of the wild, this has been um, the new wild review. Oh yeah, New Wild Review is in fact the uh, uh, podcast of Bird Ally X and all of the words that was spoken in here was me, my own, Monty Merricks and, uh, you know, and uh, don't worry. Next time is going to be with somebody who is not me also here. There will be more than just my voice endlessly. I promise. <laughs>